Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. The preaching of God's Word is essential for transformation, but preaching alone is not enough to change lives and families. Now, that may be an odd thought for you, and if it is, I trust that you would hang on just for a few minutes, and I want to walk right through that because it's important when it comes to transformation. I'm going to make the case that we absolutely need God's Word. We stand on a sufficiency of Scripture worldview. That is the foundation. But we must also be in a transformational church, a church that takes the preached Word and applies it in practical ways, which means we have to go from the pulpit to the periphery a Sunday to Sunday and not just a Sunday morning preaching center. A transformational church is both a preaching center and a discipleship community. Those two ideas should not be antithesis. In fact, they should work together because they they are essential. A preaching center and discipleship community do work in tandem from the pulpit to the living room on Tuesday morning when lives are struggling or conflict is happening. And so with sound theological wisdom flowing from the pulpit, the church is in the proper position to disseminate and distill the preached word in applicable and practical ways throughout the week so the church member can experience transformation. Hello everyone, I am Rick Thomas and this is Life Over Coffee. I am so thankful that you are here. I want to talk about this idea of a preaching center and discipleship community. It's not uh, either one or the other, but it has to be both. I have said in other places that one of the reasons that our ministry exists is because uh, the local church in some places are not doing well when it comes to the discipleship of their people. Now, we can have outstanding preachers, and we have phenomenal preachers all over this country, but we must have preaching plus these contexts in which we apply the preached word, or uh, we could fall into the trap that Paul talked about of knowledge just puffing us up, where we are inept in practically applying it to our lives. Now, I do want to give a word of caution here that if you if you're in one of those churches that doesn't do discipleship well, uh, please guard against any uh, unkind words that you may be tempted to say. We want to be part of the part of the solution, not part of the problem. And so I trust that what I'm going to share with you here will help to position you to be part of the solution. What we don't want to do, uh, if you are in a preaching center, for example, that is not a sound discipleship community, we don't want to add to the problem by sinning on top of it. And I know that would be a temptation for me if I was part of a church that preached fantastically well, which our church does, but also did not do discipleship well. That would be a problem. It would be a temptation for my own heart. And that's why I'm asking you, just in case some of you uh, would struggle because you're leaning too heavily on the preaching center, for example, and a little bit weak in the discipleship community department. Uh, What I hope is that I can share this with you, and then it will uh, give you uh, information 
direction. It will uh, hopefully encourage you, and maybe it will be a path forward for you and your church if it is weak. Actually, in either area, where there's a discipleship community or a preaching center. And so I have titled this, Is Your Church a Preaching Center or a Discipleship Community? And you can find this article, you can find the video and the podcast on our website. The street address is lifeovercoffee.com, so please come over to our uh, coffee shop and sit a spell. And you take advantage of all these wonderful world-class resources, and they're all free to you. And so let me talk about this idea. Is your church a preaching center or a discipleship community? And the way that I want to begin it is to share a a fictional story about my friend Mabel, uh, but I, I know from a whole lot of counseling experience that this story is fictional, but yet it's true to so many lives, which is why I have written this article. Now, Mabel has been a Christian for 23 years. She attended a Christian college and received a degree in business administration. She met Biff in her junior year. They married, they had two children. Biffy and Biffina. Now, Mabel is young and she is super intelligent. She also loves God and is courageous in her faith. Now, for you guys who are looking for a wonderful spouse, well, may I introduce Mabel to you? Uh, she is young. She is intelligent. She loves God. She is courageous in her faith. What more could you want? Well, she is humble. How about that? And she seeks to please God as she walks out her faith. Now, Biff once had a similar passion for God, the main thing that drew Mabel to him during their college days. As the years passed, Biff became more interested in his work than his wife. Now, that is a common temptation. I'm not going to do marriage counseling here, uh, but that is something that you want to guard against as well. It's so easy, especially for guys, to become absorbed in what they do, and we don't see ministry as a 24-7 opportunity, meaning we don't see ministry in our home serving our wives and our children. And so Biff, he works 12 to 14 hours a day during the week. On the weekend, Biff goes into his hibernation vegetative mode, that's what Mabel calls it, and he consumes an endless selection from ESPN. He also seems depressed around the house, while at other times he has fits of anger, which seem to have no cause whatsoever. Their marriage is unraveling, and the love they once had for each other is getting lost in the maze of a frustrating life. Mabel approached one of the elders at her church regarding the inevitable conjugal collapse. He could only direct her to a book on meeting one another's needs that his wife had already read, his, the pastor's wife had read. His other counsel was just as hopeless in that it provided little direction something that Mabel needed in a practical sense. After months of long-suffering and idea exhaustion, Mabel came to me with the problems of her marriage, and I attempted to direct her back to her local church, but she related her futile attempts at getting help with words of cynicism. Now, this is something that we say virtually to everyone that comes to us with some kind of problem, whether it's a marriage problem or something else. We are not the local church. 
we have a high view of the local church. We see the local church as the second best context for sanctification to happen outside of our families. In fact, it's our families that make up the local church. And so if the families are doing well, well, then the church can be doing well also. But we're not trying to supplant the local church. And so when people come to us, as Mabel did, uh, we always redirect them back to the local church. Uh, but that is a that is a, a a piece of advice that I know is is fraught with tension, uh, because one of the reasons that people do come to us in most cases is because they're not finding help at the local church. And of course, Mabel here would be uh, exhibit A. And so while we direct people back to the local church, we just don't leave it at that because, well, we've been around the block once or twice and we do understand that that local churches uh, can sometimes not be the best place to receive discipleship care. And so I asked her why she attended her church, and she gave me a line I had often heard in my counseling relationship. She said, quote, I love the preaching at my church. And as she was saying that, I felt the tension rising in my body as I compared her response, why do you attend this church, to the seemingly inevitable collapse of her marriage. There is a formula there that is broken down. If your church is that great, if your church is that fabulous, if you speak so highly of your church and your marriage is breaking down, there is something wrong. Now, I am not laying all of that in the lap of the local church, but I am saying we need to do careful and exhaustive examination to see where the breakdown is because those two statements should not go together. I love the local church because of the preaching, but my marriage is collapsing. That's like saying that uh, I love my hospital, but I am, I am dying when there is a cure. Biblical counselors have many counseling dilemmas and tensions as they interact with people with problems. One common difficulty is the question that I posed to Mabel. Why do you attend your church? Typically, the answer is similar to the one that Mabel gave. I love my church because the teaching is outstanding. The pastor is an excellent expositor. And I have heard responses like this, too. The preaching is so good. Our pastor holds our attention with great stories, and he's so down to earth, he's relevant. Now, these responses may be accurate descriptors of a good preacher, and sound preaching. And I would say, I mean, I hope that all of our teachers of the Word of God are so gifted in their oratory skill and exegetical precision. I never want to minimize the gifts needed to proclaim God's Word. It is a gift. And not everyone who desires the noble task of teaching has the skill, or as Paul would say, the ability to teach. And so while we want the teaching to be outstanding and the exposition to be precise, well, yeah, we don't want boring, bad preachers. We want people who have the gift, and it is a comprehensive gift, meaning implying oratory skill as well. And so praise God for these qualities that Mabel and others have mentioned throughout the years. 
This blessed ability to teach comes with the critical office of a pastor. If a man doesn't know how, uh, doesn't have the aptitude to teach, it is sure that God did not call him to full-time vocational teaching ministry as Paul lays out for us in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And if you're not familiar with that passage of scripture, I would encourage you uh, to go and read it, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and it lists 15 things there as far as assessing uh, what a pastor should be, and one of those things is the ability to preach. And so I never want to minimize the need for gifting, exposition, skill, relevance, and excellent illustrations to bring clarity to God's Word as one presents it to the congregation during a church meeting. But... We need to think through our methodology for how we disseminate and customize the Word of God into the individual lives of the congregation after the preaching event. To Mabel, I want to say, if the preaching is that great, which I do not doubt you at all, Mabel, how come you have so many unresolved problems in your life and in your marriage? Now, as a counselor, I am filtering Mabel's response to me about her church through the lens of the life and the marriage that is sitting right in front of me, the people that I am counseling. What would the great apostle to the Gentiles say regarding his great preaching? Could it be a robust Christian faith requires something more than great preaching? Could American Christianity have placed an unguarded emphasis on great preaching, exposition, word studies, oratory skill, and cultural relevance? Is it possible that we have, we have swung the pendulum too far because of the inept preaching that has been part of uh, our Christian culture for so long, that we have elevated preaching as we should, as we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of, his, of its Word, as we should talk about those things? But have we, have we swung so far that now there's a diminishing effect on our sanctification because we let that part of the Christian life uh, sink lower than it should? Paul said this uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. He said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, there's an element of preaching uh, that we need to talk more about. I mean, yeah, I've been saying a lot about natural gifting, uh, but there's something else that transcends natural gifting, and that is the Spirit of God just all over a person and infusing a person and elevating a person's message, which is the message of Christ. And that is how Paul preached. When John Piper reflected on these verses from Paul, this is what he said. In other words, Paul avoided the ostentation of oratory and intellect. Why? What was the ground of this demeanor in preaching? Verse 2 tells us very plainly, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Piper goes on to say, I think what he means by this verse is that he set his mind to be so saturated with the crucifying power of the cross that in everything he said and did in all his preaching, there would be the aroma of death. Death to self-reliance, death to pride, death to boasting in man. So that the life that people would see would be the life of Christ and the power that people would see would be the power of God? Why? asked John Piper. Why did he want people to see this and not himself? Well, verse 5 answers, quote, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, that God, not the preacher, might be honored in the trust of his people. That's the goal of preaching. Now, that is from the book John Piper uh, titled The Supremacy of God in Preaching. It is on page 38 specifically. Now, I would take Piper's thought and push it just a bit further by suggesting that there must be a methodology for sanctification that takes this powerfully preached Word of God that exalts Jesus Christ and works it out through the fabric of the individual lives that make up that local church. Without a system for Christians to grow, Preaching the word can lose its intended effect on the local church. The result of the preached word can become forgotten by the time the listener exits the building on any given Sunday. We see in Paul's letters to the churches a system. See, Paul said more than what I just shared with you in 1 Corinthians. He wrote several letters, and these letters present a, a system. It is a process as he lays out in those letters a methodology on how to live the Christian life in the context of the community of local churches. Paul's method goes from the pulpit, the Christ-exalting teaching that he provided, to the community where Christian living takes place. One way that we see Paul's plan for community application of the word is the study of the one another sayings in his writings. There are more than 30 of these in the New Testament, and it would be well worth your time to find all the one another passages in the New Testament, and you will see the community effect of one anothering with each other. Paul created a community effect for Christian growth. Remember, Paul's preaching was not a series of standalone events with no follow-up. His letters, full of one another verses, were the explanations and the practical outworking of his preaching. And so he just didn't preach in a silo and then go on to the next town and preach another sermon. No, he preached and he applied the things that he preached as we see written out in all of those letters. And so Paul preached the word and he carefully unpacked the word for personal application through his writings. Paul's letters were his God-inspired and God-ordained methodology for progressive and, and consistent growth for the Christian. This power of God that John Piper talks about is often not worked out and applied to the average church member through a crucified life. It's not unusual for a typical Christian to be blind to God's comprehensive approach to sanctification that extends from the pulpit to the living room. 
American Christianity, in part, seems to have concluded that the key to success of the local church is tied almost exclusively to the man in the pulpit. This success is proportionate to his ability to relate to the average person on Sunday morning. And the outcome of this kind of thinking can lead people to create a preaching center rather than a discipleship community. And because of what is going on with the internet, we have people who maybe just endure or they're okay with the preaching that they receive at their local church on Sunday morning and can't wait to get on the internet so they can hear their favorite preacher. You can quickly identify the preaching center because it's a church that progressively weakens as you move from the pulpit to the periphery. Power and relevance in the pulpit, which could very well be true. I'm not negating that, and I'm not speaking cynically. But it does not mean the congregants are necessarily growing in their personal and progressive sanctification. These same congregants may be accumulating Bible knowledge and worldview awareness, but still, all too often, they are relationally disconnected from their local church body and have very little substantive and direct accountability that impacts their lives in practical, relevant, and biblical ways. They come to their counseling sessions raving about the powerful preaching they hear weekly. Still yet, they often cannot see that their practical, functional Christianity does not demonstrate the power of God through daily living. There is no real plan for the present, future, and ongoing change. Still, the people love their church because of the great preaching. The preaching seemingly has the same effect as reading the daily news or watching a documentary. They hear it. They think about it. They may even tell a friend at the water cooler about it on Monday, but the Word does not transform them. They grow in Bible trivia but are not progressively changing daily, week to week, or year to year. Could some people be substituting great pulpit speaking for their responsibility, the call of God on their lives for meaningful, long-term, and personal sanctification? Could it be that their views of personal sanctification are truncated at the pulpit rather than extended into their daily lives? Do they think the pulpit is the beginning and the end, the warp and the woof of God's methodology for sound sanctification? For Christian maturity, if preaching defined as a monologue from the pulpit to the pew is so important, then why did Jesus rarely use this method of communication? We say that Jesus was a great teacher, and most people would think that means Jesus was a great monologuer, but Jesus hardly ever monologued. He was a dialogue teacher. And though God has commanded preaching his gospel, growth in gospel grace requires much more than sitting and soaking. I want to share with you what my uh, spiritual counseling hero, David Pallison, says on this point, the distinction between monologue and dialogue. Now, this is a lengthy quote. I'll give you where I got it from in just a moment, but I want to read it in its entirety because it's important that we understand this. David Pallison, who is rejoicing in heaven now, he said this, Several years ago, I happened to be reading the Gospel of Mark while thinking about these matters, these matters of monologue versus dialogue, specifically about Christ. 
So I took apart five chapters, Mark 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, looking not for the content of Jesus' teaching, but for the context in which his ministry of the gospel took place. I ask, is what happens in this scene, is it one-way preaching, is it monologuing, or two-way conversation? Is he dialoguing in this context? These observations are not normative in any way, meaning you must have the same ratio of interpersonal ministry to public ministry as Jesus has. No, it's not normative. Or you should quote Scripture as often or as infrequently as Jesus did. No, we're only watching and describing. We're only looking at Mark 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 and watching what Jesus did and then just describing what he did. That's all. I mean this to be provocative and illustrational. These five chapters contain 26 scenes. Jesus is talking in all 26 scenes. But four scenes are predominantly action scenes where Jesus is doing stuff. Here he is living his message, not speaking his message. In these incidents, he ministers the word and proclaims the gospel by incarnating the message, arousing faith by his actions. The verbal exchanges take, that take place are directives, directive related to his actions. The other 22 scenes... These are the ones that contain the verbal ministry of the Word. So how many, David Pallison continues, how many portray public proclamation to the crowd? How many of these are monologue of these 22 scenes? How many capture the back and forth of interpersonal conversation of these 22 scenes? How many are dialogue? There are four instances or public ministry of sermons to crowds, just four. Only one of these, Mark 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1, did not either arise from an earlier conversation or lead to a subsequent conversation, meaning that whenever he did uh, do a monologue, either the monologue came after he had a conversation or it led to a dialogue. So that leaves, excuse me, that leaves 18 scenes in which Jesus does the interpersonal ministry of the word. Now that is striking, isn't it? Jesus converses the word. Is that part of your associations to the ministry of the word? He interacts with the gospel. Does that come to mind when you think about proclamation of the gospel? No surprise. Whether Jesus is preaching or whether Jesus is counseling, he always puts things in a way that meets people. He engages their questions, their reactions, their thoughts, their experiences, concerns, troubles, motives, blind spots, circumstances, and hopes. In fact, if you extract Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you would find very little public ministry of the Word in comparison to the private ministry of the Word we conclude that Jesus' main method of communicating his truth was a two-way dialogue, not a one-way monologue. He lived in the context of his people and interacted with them primarily. Now, that was a lengthy quote, but it is well worth hearing. And if you want to read the quote yourself, you can go to this article. as your church a preaching center or a discipleship community? Or you can look for What is Ministry of the Word from the Journal of Biblical Counseling, Winter 2003, volume number 21. 
I've titled this, Is Your Church a Preaching Center or a Discipleship Community? Again, you can read everything that I've just shared with you. I trust you do, and I hope that you would share it with a friend. Let me wrap up by asking you a few questions, and then we'll be done. Why, number one, why do you attend your church? I asked Mabel that question. She says she attended her church. She loved her church primarily because of the great preaching. Of course, as I said, I'm hearing that and I'm thinking your your family is falling apart, but you go to a great church with great preaching. Can you help me put these pieces together? Because right now they are disjointed. Why do you attend your church? Number two, is your church a preaching center and a discipleship community? Is it strength or is it strength in one or the other? Number three, list how your church practicalizes the gospel in people's everyday lives. Now, again, go back to the Pallison quote. Uh, when David was talking about this, I mean, primarily Jesus, I mean, even when he did preach, it, it, the preaching either came out of a conversation where he was interacting with people or it led to a conversation where he dialogued and interacted with people. And so, Take some time to list how your church practicalizes the gospel in people's everyday lives outside of the pulpit. Number four, how are the lives transforming of those closest to you by your church's emphasis on sanctification? Now, going back to what I said at the top of this, I do want you to guard your heart because if your church doesn't do sanctification well, you could be offended, you could become sinfully angry, and that's not the point here. Uh, as I said earlier, I want you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And so if our response is sinful anger to what's going on in our church churches, then we are just complicating a pre-existing condition. And so we can't do that. And so how are the lives? It's just an assessment question to see where you are, taking the temperature of the church. How are the lives transforming of those closest to you by your church's emphasis on sanctification? And then I have two more. Number five, what are a few helpful ways your church could change to become a more effective sanctification community? And then number six, are you satisfied with the sanctification practices of your church? And so there's a lot to reflect in these six questions that I have asked you. And then I would trust, you know, maybe you can have a conversation with a leader, one of the leaders or the leader. Uh, of your church. If it's a smaller church, you may just have a pastor, one pastor, and that's fine. Uh, but I trust that you can have a conversation with him and that uh, that it doesn't turn to gossip, that you would share this article with someone and then, you know, then gossip about the church. Because again, I'll say for the final time, we can't complicate the problem by responding sinfully to something you hear like here. Now, if you really, really, really dislike what I've shared with you, then I want you to go share it with a hundred of your friends and just tell them how much you dislike this uh, podcast, this video, this article. Share it with them. I hope it creates conversation. If you like what you heard here, well, then I want you to do similarly. I want you to go out and share it with others, and I want you to have conversations for transformation. That is the heartbeat of our ministry. We provide hope and help for you and for others. We want people to, we want to spark conversations for transformation. And so I trust that you can steward what I'm sharing with you here humbly, with humility, and that you can step in these conversations and maybe it could lead to a transformation. Now, you say, well, my church is never going to do this. I get it. 
I get it. I know that's true. It, it has to be true. There's so many churches, and I know it will be true for some churches. Uh, but it doesn't have to be true for you. And so one of the things that you could do, even if your church is not interested in, in what I'm saying here, now, what you can do is just, just pray, ask God to bring you a friend, and you can start those conversations that lead to transformation with you, within you and your friendship circle. Who knows uh, what God may do with that, but it could be contagious. I do know that people are hurting. People are really, really hurting. They are struggling. And the tendency with most people is discretion. A, a self-censoring, and I don't, I don't mean that in the way that we talk about it in our culture, but people just don't share these internal hurts, and so what you have to, or internal struggles, and so what you have to do is you have to lead, and and so you can just prayerfully have these conversations with people and ask God to give you the wisdom to draw out people to see what they're really thinking, and you lead them. And you begin to develop a discipleship community within your preaching center or within your local church. If we can help you with any of these things, please jump on our website. We have millions of words on our website. I've been writing for a long time, long time. I started writing in 19, 1994, writing every day, thousands and thousands of pieces of information, and, and much of it has made its way uh, into our coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com, and it's all free to you, so just come. Uh, just come and, and read, watch, and listen until your heart's content. Maybe maybe may your heart never be content, and you just keep, keep listening because you just want to read, watch, and listen to more, and then share with others. So is your church a preaching center or discipleship community? Guard your heart. Don't become part of the problem. Be part of the solution. Pray that you can begin having a community, interactive community, community with at least one other person uh, so that change can start growing within your sphere of influence. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.